We're combining all the best old school wisdom with all the top new school methods to bring you the optimal way to coach and play the great game of baseball. This is the 80-20 Baseball Masterclass with Coach Bo. Welcome to this week's episode, coaches. Good to be here with you. The 80-20 Baseball Masterclass. We're mastering the big things first and foremost. We're going heavy on the big needle movers. Hitting, pitching, making the plays on defense, and a solid team culture. John Wooden has a quote. It's the little details that are vital. Little things make big things happen. I love this quote for youth baseball and youth sports because of the finite, the the shorter amount of time, the lesser amount of time that youth sports has compared to like what John Wooden had in college and professional. And this goes true with baseball as well. We need to be very clear in our understanding that youth baseball and youth sports, for the most part, is definitely not the same animal as high school, college, or professional. We don't have the same amount of time. We also have day jobs where college coaches, professional coaches, definitely even high-level varsity coaches, that is their day job. That is what they do, either all day long or a varsity baseball coach from about 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock typically for the rest of the day and all summer long and all winter break long, they are a baseball coach. Youth coaches, we don't have that time, and that's okay. We need to understand that, so we are big on the details. We are big on the details here. As long as they revolve around the big needle movers, we're mastering the big things first, the big deal, the big difference makers first, and then we're working from there when we have or if we have time. Here's a great quote, speaking of quotes, from Bill Belichick. Quote, my personal coaching philosophy, my mentality, has always been to make things as difficult as possible for players in practice. However bad we can make them, I make them. <laughs> this is a good one. So Bill Belichick's basically saying, hey, hey, my whole coaching, my personal coaching philosophy, my mentality has always been to make things as difficult as possible for players in practice. However bad we can make them, I make them, quote unquote, Bill Belichick. Now we don't want to make them bad for players in terms of not having fun or miserable in terms of just, you know, not a good time, but they should definitely be difficult in terms of challenging. We should not deprive, especially youth players, of success in practice, but we should start to look to make practices harder, more difficult. If you've been listening to this for the last 114 episodes, I've been very clear on this. I really, 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 truly believe there's a huge competitive advantage of sitting there and also preparing our kids better for life in that we make practices a little more challenging from time to time or a chunk of it or a big chunk of our practice more difficult. There are so many coaches in the baseball community. This has been widespread. I remember having this discussion with a professional baseball coach. I asked, said, hey, why do you guys throw up those cookies in batting practice? Why do you throw them in there so soft? Why don't you throw any breaking balls? Why is it just straight 47 mile an hour fastballs? And he said, we want our players to be confident when the game comes around. We want them to get their rhythm and timing. We want them to get their swing down, but we want them to be confident. And I said, both of those I disagree with. One, these players are not getting more confident knowing that they're hitting these easy little league fastballs. 
They're not getting more confident. That doesn't boost their confidence. They're not accomplishing anything. They're just hitting these cookies, these easily thrown batting practice fastballs that are almost impossible not to hit. And two, how are you getting your timing down and getting ready for the game pitcher when that guy's going to throw 96 or 92? He's going to switch up his speeds. He's going to throw a changeup, a split, a curveball, a slider, and all you're throwing him is just straight. There's no adjustment involved. There's no adjustability that the player needs to make, the hitter needs to make in his swing and his timing. If you think this is a one-off message that I heard, this is a message and the thought process or the thinking for a long time in the baseball community, unfortunately. And nobody ever really sat back and questioned it. Not, I shouldn't say nobody. Very few people sat back and questioned it because if you went to any major league game over the last 100 years, you would see cookie fastballs. Now, what are teams starting to do? What are teams starting to do now? 175 years into baseball, what are they finally starting to do? They're putting pitching machines out there, and they're firing some nasty stuff up there. They're throwing some crazy pitches, velocity, mixing it up. They are challenging their hitters before the game, and those are the teams that are in the playoffs now. So I found that. I stumbled across that quote by Bill Belichick, and it just lines up with the 80-20 baseball philosophy his coaching philosophy, let's make practice more difficult than the game. Let's make it as difficult as possible for players. However bad we can make it, he says, I make it. Our players do not rise to the level of the competition. They do not rise to the occasion. They don't rise to the level of the game. They sink, they fall to the level of their training. So let's make sure our training level is up on the up and up. That doesn't mean everything needs to be super difficult. We should have some success, and we shouldn't start every drill off with drilling ground balls and hitting ground balls that players can barely get to or not get to at all. And we definitely don't want to make the practice environment unsafe. So there's that happy medium right there that we're always trying to balance on. Pitching clinic date. The pitching clinic has moved back. I got family, COVID issues. We got COVID running rampant through the family. So it's been moved back. I've had to push that back, take care of other obligations. As you know, I'm very upfront. Let's take care of our family and our loved ones first and foremost. So I'll keep you posted on that pitching clinic. It is in the background. I'm working on it behind the scenes right now, prepping that out. So a pitching webinar is slated to be happening here moving it back a couple weeks, most likely here to the beginning of February. So email me, coachbo at 8020baseball.com if you're interest, interested in that. And now it's time to get into part two of the great interview that I had with Ryan Foe. Ryan is a mental game coach. He's a baseball mental game coach. The things that we talk about, the things that he shares out, I think are just absolutely big needle movers, big difference makers, big deals. So we're going to get into part two here. I do apologize for my audio again. This interview, my audio didn't turn out great. But the good news is Ryan, his audio turned out phenomenal. It came through, recorded phenomenally. So that's great. And that's the most important part. All right. We're going to pick up where we left off with part two of the interview.
one tip that I, and you give me your thoughts on this. This is a, just a direct tip. Doesn't always work, but I know it's worked well with the players I've worked with when it comes to throwing. Not necessarily pitching, but throwing. So the yips on the infield, the yips on the outfield. Okay. I've taught and tried to get players that have the yips to go a little faster with their throw. What I'm trying to teach them, and the reason I'm doing that is because what I'm trying to get the physical skill, the physical task to beat the mind from talking them into some negativity. So trying to beat it to the punch and it doesn't work with hitting and it wouldn't work too good with pitching but i found infielders that have the yips it's work just don't here's gonna give you a good example it's the third baseman who gets a rocket hit to him a, a one hopper gets it and does like triple pumps it like hits the glove with the ball and you're like oh that's a lot of time to think about this upcoming throw mm-hmm. i'd never recommend to a kid who's not suffering from any of this to just go fast just to go fast mm-hmm. but when i've had kids get the yips in the infield i've told them hey field that ground ball and i don't care if the batter is the slowest guy on the other team and they slipped in the batter's box and you have five seconds to get it to first. I want you to feel it and throw it just like you normally would and throw it quick. Get rid of it efficiently, trying to beat the mind to the punch. You know, I used to think, you know, that was a great way to do it. Like what you're saying, beat the mind, you know, prevent it from thinking. 100%. I see what you're saying. And I've tried it myself. Is there a better way or is there a way that you would tailor that to better fit or? I know what you're... in that particular case, like infielders or catchers that have the yips. Somebody who's not a pitcher. I know what you're saying. Yeah, just throw it. Just throw it as hard as you can and just do it and don't think about the consequences. I know what you're saying there. And I think that can work to an extent. But like what you said, it's not really applicable to hitting. And well, maybe it is applicable to the pitching, but just rushing things and making sure they're fast. It's almost like kind of trying to brute force thinking out of your mind. And that's kind of, it's kind of the opposite of my, my philosophy. And I'll tell you my philosophy when it comes to trying to eliminate anxious thoughts or overthinking or negative thoughts. uh, My philosophy is kind of to just accept those feelings and to slow the game down and to engage in the present moment. And you're, what you're talking about when you're talking about just do it, just throw it, just be quick with it, less time to think that's in a sense, engaging in the present moment. It's just, it's relying on instinct rather than um, having time to like calculate your throw. I see what you're saying there, but my philosophy is long, more along the lines of, of breathing and slowing your body down because our mind and our body are connected. If we want to slow our mind down, we have to slow our body down. There's this thing, there's this mind-body connection where if our body's moving fast, if we're pacing around, if we're, we're rushing things and we're kind of straining and we're pressing a little bit, then that's how our mind's going to operate as well. And this kind of leads me into, you wanted to talk about some mental techniques that young athletes can start learning is controlling our body language. That's a big thing that we can do to start influencing how fast our mind moves and trying to clear our head and gain a little bit of peace of mind is is slowing down our body in a way. So maybe what you're talking about when you're talking about like the physical action of throwing and just like speeding it up and not and not and giving you less time to think, I think that's good. But the pre-pitch when we're feeling a ball and we're getting ready to make a play, everything should be moving slowly and confidently. There's this thing called OGPS. It's a little acronym for body language. It's open grounded, priding, and OGPS. Spread? Standing. I don't even remember my own acronym, but the, the, the thinking behind it is to engage in this confident, relaxed, and controlled body language. And if we can control our body, then we can control our mind. We can, because if you've noticed with a lot of athletes, when they're really fast twitch, and this is something that I really wish I worked on a lot more because my coach would tell me, if I see you, he was a pitching coach in, in college, and he would tell me, if I see you, you know, moving fast and, you know, all jittery in the box, 
box and you're really stressing and you're really straining and you're kind of moving fast paced and not controlled, I'm going to throw you a fastball right down the middle because you're not going to hit it. That's what he'd tell me every single time. And after that, it kind of clicked for me, but I didn't think about it and I didn't put work into it. And that's when I started in retrospect after my career, I started really putting everything together. Everything needs to be slow and controlled. We need to slow our mind down by slowing our body down. It's a mind body connection. If we're fast and we're moving and we're, we're really fast paced and we're, and our heart's really beating fast, that's how our mind's going to operate as well. We're going to think more. We're going to stress more. We're going to overthink. So if we want to kind of clear our mind and engage in the present moment, we have to almost fake it until we make it. That's why you notice I've had a lot of athletes. Sorry, I'm rambling right now. Is there anything you want to say? What you're saying is great. And, and I agree hundred percent. And not that it's, it would be great if I didn't. And I know this is why I have you on here. It's not it's to get a better yeah. answer and solution for the listeners. So yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that. That's great. Keep on keeping on. Yeah. But like I said, if my coach told me, if he saw me moving fast, if he saw me fast twitch and anxious and, and stressing and straining, he would throw me a fastball right down the middle. And that's what we do when we have the ips. When we can't do simple things and we can't hit a fastball down the middle, we're moving too fast. We're thinking too fast. So the key is to slow our body down and in turn, slow our mind down. And then we'll be able to do simple tasks on the baseball field. And very, very interesting how you put that. And I think it's really resonates. And I think it's so useful to the listener, what you're saying here. Okay, so back to my, the infielder specific yips, have them go fast. Yes, uh, it is a Band-Aid approach. It is a Band-Aid approach. It would be something that you might use before a game, during a game, or if it's a short season and you don't have time to work through a long-term yeah. mindfulness presence approach. So yeah, it is a Band-Aid. I've seen that it works only, be, and it, but it doesn't fix the root exactly. uh, problem. And the one thing is with Band-Aid approaches, they can be applied sometimes it's good to you know at the end of the day like a wound a wound putting a bandage over the wound is important but at the end of the day we need to get our rest yeah. we need to heal we need to eat healthy we need to stay hydrated we need to make sure that uh, we're healing from the inside but also not letting if we can put a bandage on it that might be useful but not always i mean my daughter she put band-aids on she's little she put a band-aid on everything she get everything yeah. says she wants to put the paw patrol band-aid on and so and i love your approach you don't just want to throw the paw patrol band-aid on everything because at the end of the day we haven't solved the root cause exactly. so i think that's a great observation my my suggestion would be a quick fix something quick that long term isn't our goal here's something that i thought was really interesting you connected the mind and body but you're also connecting the body and the mind like it's a two-way connection so what i'm hearing is what i said earlier on about the mind can paralyze the body excessive thinking excessive thought the anxiety paralyzes our body it slows our breathing it shallows our breathing, it tenses our muscles and constricts and paralyzes our functioning as a person in terms of mobility and definitely athleticism. But what I'm hearing you say, which is a really interesting take, and I, and I completely see exactly where you're coming from, the body can actually impact the mind. So like, for example, you said posture, like having a confident posture. The kid that walks into, it's really hard. Like if you're telling a kid the, his first day of school, it would be really hard for a kid to go into the first day of seventh grade <laughs> with his chest up, his head up, walking with a little swag, it would be really hard for that kid not to have a sense of confidence or an uptick in confidence, right? And so it would be very hard. Yeah. So I love you. You're saying it's like two different ways to handle this. And this is what, what I love about where this conversation is going and what we're getting to for the listener is we're giving a whole set of tools and the coaches can see and use them as they see fit. But I love the, the back and forth. So it's not just the mind impacting the physical. So not just the anxiety paralyzing the body, but the flip side is the body can loosen up, can 
and give that, not really loosen it, but give a sense of confidence. Like you said, even if it's a fake kind of acting, even if you act as if, that act as if, it's so true. Everybody that's old enough to have any sense of awareness, you know, out that really has thought about this knows what you're saying is 100% useful and, and accurate. Yeah. The thing, elaborating a little bit more on the body language, when we convey this sense of confidence and this sense of control, and he knows what he's, he or she knows what they're doing out there by the way that they're presenting themselves, other people will see that and feed off that energy and reflect it back to you. It all sounds very wooey wooey, but that's kind of how systems work in inter- interpersonal relationships. And human beings, like I said earlier, we think, act, and perform in accordance to what we believe to be true about ourselves. So if we see people kind of giving us that level of respect when we're acting all confident and we're more, when we have controlled movements, we're going to feel that and then we're going to perform and act in accordance to those feelings. You kind of see what I'm saying? 100%. Yeah, that's what I've had so many athletes when I talk about this all the time, like they'll come back to me like, they're like, yeah, whenever I like kind of act as this like cocky like persona and start moving around, like I'm really confident. It makes me feel that way. It has a direct impact on how we feel and how we think about ourselves, thus impacting the way that we will perform. It's weird to think about. That's where the term, you know, fake it till you make it comes from. You know how a lot of coaches sometimes will tell you, just act like you have confidence up there. And that's a good thing too, because there's nothing bad that can come from acting and faking confidence. It's much better than behaving like you have no confidence. Let me jump in and ask you, what is that? So you have a coach. What does that look like? Uh, Okay, so the coach is telling his players, act like you have confidence. What are a few tips that you as a coach could share action items that they can share with their players to get them physically in a better or more confident position? In a more confident state, body language, 100%. And affirmative phrases, anything positive phrases like we were talking about earlier, but again, teach them how to do those things. And when you're specifically talking about confidence, or are you talking about other ways that we can use mental techniques so that they can start using to perform better? The fake it till you make it, you know, what are, what would be, you know, I mean, what you're telling, would you, would the coaches say, hey, stand tall, chest up, kind of walk? With- oh, you're talking about the specific uh, body language. Yeah. So open, for some reason, I cannot remember the S. I don't know why. Let me look it up really quick. But I know the other three. That's the thing with acronyms, Ryan. You know, these <laughs> acronyms, that's the thing. You know, they're so great. But then it's like, I was having this conversation with some folks that I work with. The acronyms, there's just so many of them and they're great. And they're very useful with remembering things. And I use them frequently. And the trade-off is that you do have to recall because it's not right there in front of you. The word, you have to recall what it, you know what that letter stands for. So, and we're, we have so many acronyms now, it seems like. And in fact, the other day, I swear I heard an acronym that was the same acronym for three different things. And I'm like, oh, this is problematic. It was like a three letter acronym. I'm like, oh, that's something I've heard for three different meanings. So. I'll just give the OGP. So the O is open. We want our stance like open. If we are conveying this kind of open like body language, we're going to feel that energy proportionately. If we're standing like narrow, that's more of a kind of reserved feeling. It's more of a like unconfident feeling. The P is priding. So chest up, shoulders wide apart. You just get your chest up and you know, you just act proud of yourself. And then OGP, OG, oh, grounded. G is for grounded. So you're not bouncing up and down. You're not moving super fast. Oh, the S is slow. I can't believe I forgot forgot that. So the O, open. Have your stance open. The G is grounded. Make sure you're rooted in the ground beneath you. You're not bouncing up and down. You're not moving too far off the ground. Priding is the chest up and slow is the last one. Moving your body in a controlled and almost like slow motion manner. Just slowing down our body and in turn, slowing down our thoughts and the overthinking that comes with it. I'll put that in the show notes. 
And it's not just body language that impacts the way that we think, it's our breathing too. When we start thinking and we start overthinking and we start like overanalyzing things and thinking about negative thoughts and negative self-beliefs, our heart starts racing, right? We start tensing up our muscles. We start straining ourselves. We're like, we really need to do this right now. I need to get this job done. So you're really like straining yourself because you want to ensure that you make this throw or that you hit this pitch down the middle on a 3-1 count. And we really kind of strain ourselves. So a way that you can mitigate that and mitigate the overthinking and the pressure and the straining is just simple breathing, just simple breathing. And what it does is it relaxes the muscles in our diaphragm and in turn, you know, gets oxygen to the rest of our body. And if we're tight in our diaphragm, we're going to be tight in our muscles as well. So if we can loosen our diaphragm, we can in turn loosen the muscles throughout our body. So pranic breathing, there's a specific set breathing that I want coaches to kind of know. And these are all super, like they're not super advanced sports psychology exercises, like mental performance exercise. These are things that you can teach an athlete on the spot right there or before practice, like pranic breathing, like body language, like feeling the senses in our body to engage in the present moment. These things are really, really easy to do. So pranic breathing is, is a set breathing. And what it does is it kind of, so it's all, it, you, you breathe in for six seconds through the nose, you hold for three seconds, and then you breathe out for six seconds. And the important thing to know is to breathe and let the air flow into your stomach rather than flow into our chest. For some reason, as humans grow older, they start bringing all the breath in the air into our chest. But if we breathe into our stomach, it better spreads the oxygen and increases blood flow. So pranic breathing is six seconds in and then three second hold and six seconds out making a shh sound. And breathing is, is so underrated. It's so crazy. And it's just a simple thing that you can do to improve your in-game performance, the way you think about yourself and clear your mind. Yep. And it's so crazy. Coaches all the way all, all around, they're like, yeah, just breathe, just do a quick uh, deep breath. And that's good. But there's more specific, like proper ways to breathe to better influence the feelings in your body and the feelings in your mind. And you see, there's, I want to use this example in professional baseball for the Boston Red Sox, J.D. Martinez. I'm sure you're aware of J.D. Martinez. He is huge on the mental game of baseball. He journals every single at bat and he does this set breathing routine before each and every single at bat. He looks at the barrel of his bat. He takes a huge deep breath into his stomach and then he lets it out with his eyes closed for about three to four seconds each. And he started teaching this to Rafael Devers, the third baseman for the Boston Red Sox, and he started doing it too. So you see these impact that these little mindfulness techniques have on the highest levels of the game. And, I, and you look at that and I get angry when people don't know about that and aren't practicing those things too. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. You got me thinking, I want to come back around to this. I think this is something that needs to be systematized. What I mean by that is we have a throwing routine that we just expect kids to or a warm-up routine physical, and this is how we do this, and this is how we take a lead off, and this is how we run the bases, and these are our signs. We have all these systems in place. I think we need to start systematizing some of these approaches. Now, I know a lot of people go, well, each kid's a little bit. You know what? Humans are humans, and there's a lot of common. I mean, there's commonalities across the board <laughs> that would work. These things that you're recommending would work with every single player. Now, to some extent, to more with some than, than others, of course, but the breathing technique, the what you just described, your six second in, six second hold. Now, you said six seconds in. Three second hold, six seconds out. Three second hold, six seconds out. So six, three, six. And that goes along with some of the box breathing here, the four, four. I've tried different things. 
for me, what's good for just me personally is that six. I like the six, six and hold for like three or four. It's perfect. That works good. I know some people will do a four and four, you know, four, but, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're a second off or a second here, each player will kind of find a rhythm, but doing it should be systematized. Now, what do I mean by that? You mentioned JD Martinez. Now, JD Martinez and so many hitters, I have a video on my website where in his first at bat in the major leagues, uh, Wander Franco does, uh, takes a deep breath. And I pointed out, I said, this is his major league debut. This is his first at bat. This is, this is right before the first pitch. He's been touted. He knows everybody's going to watch this at bat, either on video or live. His focus was look at the barrel, take a focus, a focal point, take a, a breath. But it should be systematized. Like I think coaches should take more control of this and say, hey, I want all of you to do something of this sort. And maybe you give them a little leeway within that, give them some parameters. But I want to see a deep breath. I want to see a focal point on your eyes. And I can't go without saying I got to give a huge shout out to, and I know you're familiar with this name, Ken Reviews. Yep. I'm looking at the original, the original book, Heads Up Baseball, original copy of Heads Up Baseball from the early 90s. Ken Revisa was somebody that I studied under for probably as much as any athlete could have because I got him in high school and my Hall of Fame high school coach brought him in because he was a Southern California guy and I was in Southern California. He brought him in. So many high school, he wasn't working with high school teams. He was working with college and pro and Olympic teams, but he came to our high school and worked with us a little bit. Then at Long Beach State, that was his number one school. That was the number one thing program he worked with in 1999 through 2003. Now he was consulting for a lot of different teams and stuff, but he was there hour after hour after hour, week after week after week. He was always around and I got him for four years. I said, I spent four years at Long Beach State, which, you know, Long Beach State, a lot of the guys are transferring yeah. in as junior college or they're getting drafted after their third year. Well, I had an elbow injury in my junior year, so I ended up getting coming back for a fourth year. So I got more Ken Revisa, who's considered the grandfather of the mental game. He's the, the I said grandfather. He is the godfather. He recently passed away, sadly, too young, but I mean, he, he wasn't young, but definitely he had so much more to share out. And that was a kind of a bummer to, to see because he was such a great guy. But as the godfather of the mental game, one of the biggest things that he shared with and had players do was that breath before the at-bat and that breath before every pitch. That was one of his main things. I mean, he had quite a few tips and strategies, but the breathing. And that's coming straight from the godfather of the mental game of baseball. And what do you think? I think systematizing this a little yeah. bit more with, you know, so it's not something like, it's not a, a patchwork thing. Like, no. oh, I had this kid in the middle of the sixth inning. Like, I'm going to tell him to breathe. I think we need to make this more of a routine. What, is, what I mean by system is routine. I think we need to make a routine out of more of these things. What do you think? So a big thing that I talk about is having an action plan and a game plan, a personal game plan. And I don't mean like the physical side of baseball or sports in general. I talk about having certain plans or routines ready to go in reaction to adversity or pressure situations or situations where you feel you've lost confidence or you're feeling, you know, heavy anxiety and having tools that you can use like in your toolbox to mitigate the effects of those, get you back into the present moment and get you back in and focused on the game. I was speaking on the note that you were saying like systematizing it and, you know, it'll be hard because everyone's different. Two things I want to talk about. Number one is that the beauty of the mental game is that there's a multitude of solutions for a single problem. So if you're lacking confidence, you can start journaling, you can start writing 
writing affirmations. You can start, you know, having a, like a confidence card, writing down all your achievements and what you're good at, or just the body language. There's so many solutions. You kind of see what I'm saying there. Mm-hmm. It's That's the beauty of the mental game. Like everyone's different. So certain things, certain exercises, certain breathing routines or confidence building routines or dealing with anxiety routines, they might work differently for everybody. And I was speaking to, I got on a call with the mental skills coordinator for the Houston Astros. And he, I was talking about it. I'm like, what kind of system do you guys have in place? Is there a general like curriculum or are there specific tools that you need or that every athlete should know? And he said, yes and no. They have programs where they teach them certain mindfulness techniques and teach them how to deal and react to certain like situations. But the main thing with mental performance at the most elite levels is that everybody, every athlete is different. They're coming from all sorts of different cultural backgrounds. You have athletes coming from, you know, they might be a faith, you know, they might be like agnostic or like they might come from the Dominican Republic or from Venezuela or Japan. And there's so many different cultures and backgrounds that there's not always a specific solution for each problem. And that the main work happens when they're just communicating with their players one-on-one and seeing what works for them, trying and testing different things, trying and testing different confidence building habits or relaxing in the moment or breathing. And that's one approach that youth baseball coaches can take with their athletes is just getting to know your players like you're most likely good at and just speaking to them, speaking to them about their negative beliefs. What kind of makes them struggle? What kind of thoughts do they have? Or what makes them tick? What makes them go? What makes them lock in? You know, there's so many different solutions. And then just kind of having this toolbox that you can be like, hey, try this or hey, do this. It's almost like the kind of band-aid system that we're seeing with like fixing mechanical mistakes that might work for a little bit, you know, when we're talking about throwing or hitting, but in the long run, don't always work out and don't always help with the player's progression. But there's, you kind of get the sense for what I'm saying is like the main work happens with mental performance and elevating a player's game is just speaking to them. It's just getting to know them and talking to them and what works for them on a one-on-one basis. And that's what we can do better as just number one, you know, making them aware of of mental performance resources and, and certain skills and certain tools that they can use to elevate their game and making them aware of it and then talking about it to them and, and making them kind of respect it and see, you know, hey, this can have a real impact for you. Uh, you might want to try this, you know, just making spreading overall awareness of it to your athletes and then talking to them about what works. Yes, I love the idea of taking a little bit of the stigma away and talking about it and talking about the elephant in the room and make it desensitizing, get our players to it a little bit by just discussing it. And also by discussing the prevalence of it and that they're not alone, it's common and just kind of laying that foundation. So we talked about systematizing. I do think trying to have some kind of a system in place, mental game system, whether it's uh, having your pitchers take a breath before each pitch um, or your hitters do a breath. Now, how that looks when they do it? Is it as they're walking up to the plate? Is is it right before they get into the box? Is it right before the pitch? Is it right before they get their grip? Is it after they get their grip on the mound? I think that will be tailored and each player will find something that works better for them with the parameters. The goal is the same. The problem is the same. The solution has a little bit of a variation. You know what I believe really helps get to know players better? So you, you were recommending to youth coaches with the limited amount of time that we have to get to know our players better so we can provide more specific and more personalized and more accurate solutions for them tailored more accurately for their needs well what i really truly believe is that if we can systematize our the physical part like our drills mm-hmm. and our routines like the throwing program and the dynamic warm-up or, or the warm-up routine or the setup of a drill that you know going through a drill the batting practice routine if we can systematize that and what i mean by that is players know they know the routine they don't it's automatic it's on autopilot they 
know how to set it up. They know what's expected. They know how to do it. They know how to complete it. They know what the goals are. Doesn't mean they're going to do it perfectly. Of course, there's going to be a lot of errors. They're going to make mistakes. That's not the point. The point is, as coaches, we don't have to sit there and order them around and tell them, all right, next person go. All right, next line of players. Now you go on your street. All right, that's been 10 seconds. Let's switch the stretch or that's 30 mm-hmm. seconds. They should be on autopilot as much as possible. So as coaches, we can build better rapport and get to know our players because if we're running practice, we're in practice. We can't work on our team when we're working in the team. We need to work on our team and work. And then, so what you're saying, I love it. And it goes with the message that I've been sharing is that we want to get things. We want to have fewer drills, fewer physical drills, and just don't have three different batting routines for you. Mm-hmm. Have one batting practice routine or two, maybe one for the field and one for the, the batting cages. Maybe there's a facility where batting cages you go to on days where it's raining or whatever inclement weather. Have that so you don't have to continually explain to them the steps, the rules, the safety procedures and all that. So it gives you as a coach, it gives us as a coach a lot more time to build connections and really dig deep what you're saying, dig deep. So then we can present better, more accurate, more personalized, individualized solutions. And I think one concern that I can see with a lot of coaches listening to this right now is, you know, number one being that our athletes are just kids right now. And that, you know, you see them on the field and they're running around, they're having fun, they're joking around with each other. And it's just about the game of baseball right now. And it's it's compete and to have fun. But at, at a certain point in their career, they will start to feel feelings of anxiety, of low confidence. Well, hopefully in an ideal world, never, but they will start to feel these things at some point. So it's worth it. It is 100% worth it to introduce these key concepts regarding mindfulness and mental performance to them at a young age, because not only can it help them manage, you know, feelings of self-doubt and anxiety and, and low self-esteem and low confidence, and not only can it help them manage those things in games and competitions, but it can also help them in life because sports is a lot like life. Baseball is exactly like life. We're going to fail 70% of the time. And I just think that it is of the utmost importance to introduce them to these concepts at a young age. That's that's kind of my because I've been thinking about it a little bit and it's it's hard to get that message across, um, especially to coaches who don't have a lot of time and resources to do those things or really the knowledge. So I think like when we're talking about implementing these things, if you're a coach listening to this right now and talking to your team and, and like really implementing it and getting this message across, it only takes 20 to 30 minutes, maybe one practice a week. Talk about it and just perpetuate these ideas of presence, of being able to handle uh, fear of failure and being able to handle moments when they have low confidence. I think those things cannot be overlooked, especially at such a developmental age and time period in a young athlete's life. I think it's very astute of you to bring up what I think is definitely a, a common thought or as the listeners are listening to it right now going, well, they're kids. Why do I, you know, Coach Bull, Coach Ryan, why, why do I got to get into this with kids? I got nine you, I got 10 yeah. you, I got 10 year olds. Why do I have to get into this? Trust us coaches. This is absolutely a big deal. With our state of mental health in society, it's a bigger deal now than ever. So I work a lot with high school students and I don't go a day or two without getting an email from us from these are 15 year olds 14 year olds this is not that far from a 10 u, 11 u. this is a blink and they're going to be and they're checking in to mental health hospitals they are not getting therapy that's been done now for years i'm talking about they are checked in to therapy and rehab for mental health i'm not talking about one offs i'm talking about this is a big huge deal so mental health is a huge deal so if anything we talk about it ryan i hit on this a lot 
lot. Youth sports should be a fun vehicle to get kids better prepared for life in a much more fun and enjoyable way than a textbook and, you know, a chalkboard or a tutorial video. It should be a fun, it's gamification, it's fun, it's, you know, they're out there, they're outside, they're working with their peers, they're having fun. They're, the whole thing is, it's a much more enjoyable environment to learn about life than many of the alternatives, that being sports, in this case, baseball. And it really is a microcosm of life. It's really a, baseball is a great training ground for what life is going to be like as an adult. So with that said, at a minimum, even if you don't think that the kids at nine, it's going to make a huge deal on the scoreboard for a nine or 10 year old, it will make a difference. I guarantee you that. And I know Ryan will back me on that, but it's also, what are we doing for these kids in the long term? Because even the best of the best, like I mentioned, uh, Jared Weaver, one of the best players I ever played with, he's done it. He wasn't even 35, I think, and he was done. That's a lot of life to live. You know, even the best. And most kids are done at high school or before or in college or whatever. They're done and they have way more of their life left after they play than they did before. And so what are we doing as coaches to get them ready? I think we're wasting a golden opportunity if we don't use sports, which is a fun thing for most players and can be a lot more fun with these mental health strategies. So at the end of the day, I think at a minimum, just know that whatever you're giving them out there on the field to practice. So I share that with you. And Ken Revisa, I talked to players that are teammates of mine from college, and I, I share with them some of the, you know how things are going on. I go, hey, you know what? You know what I use more than anything from college, from my degrees, my bachelor, my master's degree, all that stuff. And everything I learned in, in terms of you know all these other skills is the mental game from Ken Revisa has helped me more in life than it probably ever did help me on the field. And it helped me on the field, but it has just continually helped me in life. I know that brings about a passion of yours and a yeah. passion of mine, but I think that's very astute with what you said is like, I just want to make sure when we got on before we got on, I said, Ryan, you're going to have, we're going to have listeners go, why do I, why is this important? Or I know it's important, but how important? This is a big deal. This is a massive, massive thing. But with the time frame that we have, you know, in terms of how many practices a week and things, I know there's some strategies, or I should say some of these things, uh, we can't get into it as deep, but there's definitely some stuff that we can start getting into and, and kind of exposing it to mm-hmm. them. And I think, Ryan, that's what you're sharing is we need to start exposing our kids to the mental game and mental health and some strategies yeah, that a fair assessment run with it. Oh, you're spot on. You That completely corresponds to what I believe. All right, that is where we are going to splice away from the interview. Next week, part three, in my opinion, part three is the best part of all three of the trilogy with our interview with Ryan Foe. So we'll see you next Tuesday when the next episode goes live, our weekly Tuesday episode publish. And until then, take care of yourself, your health, take care of your families, your friends, and go out and do your part to make the baseball community a much better place by being a much better coach. Take this information out there, use it, test it, try it out, see how it can fit into your coaching game. And we'll catch you on the flip side. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field. 